This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. So check it out. I'm Elise, the newest addition to the Fisheries Pod host fam. Today, our guest is my friend and colleague, Clemency White. Clemency is a PhD student at the University of Exeter. Her research focuses on the impact of anthropogenic noise and light on shark behavior. For her PhD, she has been working to develop an understanding of the physiological and behavioral responses of juvenile sharks to human developments, particularly the noise and lights associated with coastal construction and recreational water users. Welcome to the podcast, Clemency. Hi, thank you for having me. So to start, um, I'll just ask what originally got you interested in shark research and what makes them good candidates for the focus of your project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, To be honest, I feel like a lot of people who work with sharks, myself included, kind of just always had a fascination with them. Um, For me as a child, I was mostly obsessed with things like dinosaurs. I was really interested in these kind of historic animals or this prehistory that a lot of animals have and sharks really fit the bill for kind of being a modern day animal with a lot of those features that those very old animals um, still have so that was kind of what made me really interested in them and obviously growing up during a time when conservation documentaries especially started to turn just from natural history into thinking more about threats um, I feel like I quite quickly became aware that sharks are actually a very heavily threatened taxonomic group. And so my interest in biology and just animals in general kind of turned into what can we do to protect them and what can we learn about them? And that's kind of what led me here today, I guess. Awesome. And then as far as your specific project, um, how do sharks play into this question um, of noise and light? Yeah. So, I mean, really, we don't know. And that's what got me interested in this. Um Obviously, the the sensory world that any animal exists in is incredibly important to all aspects of its behavior. So every animal has its own unique set of sensory systems, um, its own set of sensitivities, its own way of incorporating um, different sensory modalities into its understanding of the world. Um, And really, without those different sensory modalities, they can't do most of their key behaviors, such as feeding, um, finding a mate, finding suitable habitat. I knew a lot of this from my kind of undergraduate and master's degree understanding of kind of marine biology. And uh, I got involved with Steve Simpson's lab at the University of Exeter, who were kind of specialists in marine bioacoustics, so mostly in the the sound side of things. And they've had about 10 to 15 years of really, really interesting research that has shown anthropogenic noise to have a huge impact on almost all marine taxonomic groups that they've studied. And this actually happens in so many different ways. So quite surprisingly, you'll see things like sea hares, which are kind of small. They look like sea slugs. They're they're not an animal that you would look at and think, wow, that probably has great hearing or that's kind of responding to sound. (laughs) Um, But actually they have shown responses that are pathological. Um, So they can actually die in response to really loud sounds. Um, You're probably kind of familiar with things like dolphin strandings um, that may be more popular answers to these kinds of questions. So we know that noise is having an effect on, on dolphin and cetacean behavior. Um, but actually, even these animals that are much smaller, maybe not the ones that you would associate with acoustic communication, are also being impacted in many different ways. 
even things like reproduction, um, you know, some fish build these little nests and we know that their nest guarding behavior is impacted by motorboat noise. Um, and so I kind of, when I joined Steve's group, I, I had this pre-existing love for sharks and this interest in sharks. And so the first question I kind of thought was, okay, I've seen that Steve's group has shown that, you know, across marine mammals, across those of different reef fish, across pelagic fish, even, you know, corals, coral larvae and pelagic larvae, we've seen that these all use noise in their ecology. And we've seen that motorboat or anthropogenic sources of noise can have a big impact on them. You know, what about sharks? Where do they fit into the picture? And I was quite surprised to find that there really wasn't a lot of knowledge, not just on how anthropogenic noise affected sharks, but also just the way that sharks hear in the first place. Um, because their sensory systems have evolved for such a long time, a lot of the attention has really gone on the senses that we think are really interesting. So the sense of smell, which is obviously very famous, um, has long dominated our understanding of kind of shark sensory biology. But things like sound, people haven't really considered too much. But they are sensitive to sound. They're sensitive to low frequency noise. And um, we do have some suggestion now that that could be used in key behaviors. So thinking about, again, the threat that exists to sharks, particularly from fishing, the fact that they're using sound in their biology, um, really understanding if there is an effect of things like anthropogenic noise is, is quite important to our understanding of, of how to conserve them best, especially in these coastal areas where we know that there is a lot of anthropogenic noise. Awesome. Um, can you, just for some background, um, mm -hmm. For the listeners who might not be super familiar with sharks, can you talk a bit about um, shark sensory systems and how they perceive their environment from what we know so far? Yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, the first thing to kind of pre-know anything, well, a lot of science, but especially shark sensory systems, is that we do have quite a decent understanding, but it's from such a limited number of species. So obviously the diversity of shark species that is out there that exists within the world is, is massive. You know, you have some sharks that are spending all their time on benthic habitat. You have some that are completely oceanic and pelagic. You have others that are coastal. You have, you know, reef sharks and some that are even, you know, using, using freshwater environments too. And so each of these environments is very, very different in, you know, the composition of light, the composition of sound, how sound bounces around is also very important. Um, and the same will exist for things like olfaction and um, touch and even things like their electrosensory perceptions are going to be very different depending on the environment they exist in. So a lot of our understanding is still quite limited by the species we've studied so far. Um, generally speaking, uh, we think that the longest distance the longest operational range they have for any set for any sense that they have is is likely sound um sound does travel very very far underwater uh, it travels three times as fast and three times as far but the evidence to see whether or not they're detecting it over those ranges is still lacking they have generally a very good sense of vision but that really also changes depending again which system you're in so deep sea sharks may not be relying so much on their vision as as sharks that are living in coastal areas and on reef habitats but we do see some really interesting adaptations. So there are bioluminescent species of shark. So something that's quite interesting in that is that in the deep sea environment where they have bioluminescence and probably aren't using it for the kind of things that other fish are using bioluminescence for down there, um, that could be something that sharks are using as communication or to identify each other or potentially to mimic downwelling light to prevent them being predated. So even in these deep sea habitats, we do think that things like sight are still important. And that's why things like anthropogenic light can have a big impact on, on species as well, because the existence of, of light in deep sea environments is, is rare. 
And so to have a novel stimulus down there could be a big impact. Um, similarly, in coastal environments where they've typically been dark at night for a long time, that could be very disruptive to suddenly have 24 hours of bright light. In terms of shark auditory systems specifically, I guess maybe the history of, of how that study came about. Um, in the kind of 1960s and 70s, there was a real kind of plethora of, of studies of shark acoustic ecology. So people suddenly became interested, mostly in kind of shipwrecks, actually. So some of the funding came from the Navy to look at how sharks might be responding to sound um, in order to see if struggling people or, or things that were moving in the water were going to be attractive to sharks and that that might help in terms of survival at sea. Some of those studies were mostly... Almost all of those studies were acting in pelagic environments, um, mostly doing playbacks of things like struggling fish, or in many cases, just low frequency pulse noise. And it quite quickly became apparent that low frequency pulse noise, especially when it has a gradual onset, is actually very attractive to sharks. And this is something that is quite similar to what a struggling fish might produce. So sharks are able to detect that, but very sudden onset and very loud noises can very quickly deter sharks. So we know that perhaps things like orca calls or something that, for example, might be a negative sound for sharks could also have a different response. And this piece of research, even though it was you know, many years ago, is really key to our understanding now because it shows that there are multiple behavioral responses to sound. And even though sharks aren't known for their communication, you know, they don't produce noise um, that we know of yet we do see that there's probably some reason for them to be able to detect it and to respond to it in multiple different ways. So that underpins a lot of the research that then came after that. In terms of their sensory systems and how they're actually receiving sound, that's still something that we don't really understand too much. They have an inner ear structure, very similar to, to humans, actually. Um, sharks don't have any external ears. Um, so we have these big flaps on the side of our head that make it really easy to tell that we can hear and usually we have a look at ears and use that as a way of considering whether or not an animal is, is listening. With sharks, because water is the same density as the body of a shark, sound waves will move all the way through. So that means that they can detect things in their inner ear without having to have um, a big outer structure in order to funnel it inside. Within their inner ear, they have kind of a labyrinth of different structures. Exactly which parts of those structures are responding to sound, we're not sure. But one thing that is very interesting about them is that they don't have any way, or it doesn't seem that they have any way to detect pressure. So we think that the component of sound they're responding to is, is purely particle motion, which spreads over much shorter distances than pressure, um, and likely means that they're detecting sound in a very different way to how, how we might. It's primarily to do with yeah, the, the motion of these particles and how it dis displaces um, heavier, more dense structures called otoconia um, in the inner ear of these sharks. That's all super interesting. Thank you. <laughs> um, do sharks have any systems that are unique to them or that humans might not have any equivalent for? Yeah, they certainly do. I, the biggest, obviously, anomaly is their ability to detect electromagnetic fields. So sharks are able to detect electromagnetic fields um, primarily through a set of sensory um, pores they have, mostly around their kind of rostrum, so the kind of the tip of the shark around their nose. They have these really small jelly-filled pores that can actually conduct electrical signals. So if a shark passes over something, um, and it does have to be in very close range, it means that they're able to detect that there is something biological that's producing an electric signal beneath them. And that's usually how they're sometimes locating prey when they get very close, probably lining them up in order to get a bite. 
So that's usually the very close range last modality that they use. But obviously, we don't really have an equivalent to that. So it's quite an interesting concept for us as humans to, to understand. And to be honest, that's one of the most interesting things of studying sensory biology in the first place, because, you know, even in an, another animal that has sight, we often will maybe think, okay, well, the sharks don't see well. That's something that some people might say, or that compared to humans, sharks don't have good vision. Um, but what I would actually argue, and the same with sound, is that you might not have as, as good hearing or as good vision as a shark, but that's, that's kind of a, an arbitrary statement. A shark has perfect vision for the environment it's in, and a shark has perfect hearing for the environment it's in. So actually it has perfect hearing and it has perfect vision. It's just maybe not how, how we, would, we would see it. Um, and a lot of sensory biology does tend to play with these kind of anthropomorphic themes of always comparing our sensory systems to the animals we're studying. But yeah, the, the electric sense is definitely one that I think captures a lot of people's imagination because it is so, so uniquely different. But I would also argue that, you know, so much of your sensory understanding of the world, or you know, as a human, you don't often distinguish necessarily between what you're seeing and, and what you're smelling and what you're hearing. It, it kind of is just a singular experience for you. And so, again, when we're approaching these kind of questions in sensory biology, it's important that we have a good understanding of each individual sense, but also that we think about how they combine. And it's very likely that that electric sense within a shark's kind of understanding of the world um, is is part of, of all of those sensory systems acting together, um, especially in, in things like predation. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. I, I think very often about how the way that we look at other animals and mm -hmm. in particular in regards to their intelligence is based around how humans perceive the world. Yeah, absolutely. And whether animals can perceive the world in that way mm -hmm. instead of, you know, all these other crazy things that are going on that animals are perceiving that we have no idea of, or at mm -hmm. least no conscious understanding of. Um, yeah. So that's super interesting. <laughs> absolutely. And it's just so hard to imagine a world that doesn't, you know, feel the way that it does to you. And that's just such a huge limit, I think, of, of studying anything like this is you can you can study, you know, you can you can find the data or you can look at a spectrogram. You can, you know, filter your your audiograms. You can you can look at things how you think an animal is going to perceive it. But you're still only able to hear those playbacks. You're still only able to see what an animal does with your own eyes and with your own ears. And that's always going to be a limitation to our understanding. But it's something that actually is quite inspiring to keep keep going, I think, sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, even thinking about how hard it is to tell another person how you're feeling. <laughs> and yeah, they, no, completely. You know, speak your language and see the same things that you see. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the um, one of the really cool things that I think, oh, well, that, that I always think of when I'm when I'm studying these things and, and trying to get a perception of it is also how much we see in the natural world that species have also evolved, you know, alongside another species sensory biology. So we see things like, you know, the arms race between bats and moths, where the calling rate of a bat's echolocation is constantly evolving based on a moth's hearing range, because they constantly need to be trying to outdo each other. And this is constantly happening, even though these two animals are very different themselves. And um, a good example with sharks, and, and one of my favorite studies, actually, um, was one with cuttlefish. So cuttlefish have actually been shown to freeze or kind of stop giving off uh, you know, their electromagnetic fields um, when they're in the presence of predators. Um, and this is lab studies, but it shows that they're able to somehow know that a shark is nearby and actually change their entire way of existing in that moment 
just to make sure that a shark sensory system that they probably don't have an, a perception of or an idea of, they don't know that that shark has an electric sense, um, but they're actually able to, to modify their behavior in order to prevent that, that animal using its sensory biology to its full capacity. Um, so stuff like that's also really interesting. You know, we're constantly also shaping each other's um, sensory biology in one way or another. I love that. At some point, one cuttlefish said, what if I just do this? Yeah. <laughs> and it yeah, works. And, it works. Yeah. <laughs> and they live to tell the tale and have <laughs> exactly And have other cuttlefish that do the same yeah. thing. <laughs> Cute. So on the topic of, since we're talking a lot about sound, what is anthropogenic sound and why is studying it important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so anthropogenic sound or anything anthropogenic is what we classify to be from a man-made or, or human source. So typically when we're talking in soundscape terms, we split all sound that exists into three categories. Anthropogenic is one. The other would be um, geophony or geophony. And that is anything that's produced by a geological source. So that tends to be things like, you know, the sound of water, the sound of weather, and the sound of any kind of wind or storm. And then the other one is biophony. So anything that's from a biological source. So that would be, you know, the sounds that fish produce, um, bird song. Um, those are all things that we would classify as biological. Now, obviously, biological and geological noise kind of have existed since time began. Those are things that almost every animal has evolved in tandem with. And a lot of sensory systems, again, would have been tuning into that. You know, the evolution of hearing in the beginning would have been to use these sources in order for an animal to increase its fitness and survival and also to explore new sensory niches. So for a long time, for, for millions of years um, throughout evolution, animals have really been in tune with both geological and biological noise. And we know that they use this for really fascinating feats. So sound, for example, underwater is used across absolutely miles of ocean by humpback whales or by many species of whales in order to communicate their, their location. Um, we also know that acoustic communication can help fish guard their nests. We know that things like sound can actually attract coral reef larvae to settle. Um, and this is something that uh, a lot of the work in my research group at the moment is going into seeing if that can help coral restoration. Because even these tiny little larvae, these pelagic reef fish larvae and potentially these coral larvae are actually being drawn towards the sound of healthy coral reefs. And that's how they learn uh, the habitat that they want to use. So across the oceans, we know that sound has, has played for a long time a really important role in settlement, in finding prey, in finding mates, in even just communicating, you know, intraspecifically and also between other species. However, the dawn of anthropogenic noise is relatively much smaller than that. Um, and especially within the oceans, that took us a lot longer to kind of habituate as we have. Within the last, I mean, 100 years, really, since the Industrial Revolution, the movement of humans to the coastline and the expansion of our everyday kind of resource extraction, our tourism, our leisure activities, those have all really expanded onto coastlines drastically. And the amount of noise that has then been put into the oceans by these activities has rapidly increased at a rate at which the animals that are using sound in the ocean can't keep up with. And we have seen this to have a negative effect across multiple taxonomic groups. Um, as I said, everything from invertebrates, you know, krill, all the way through to things like um, cetaceans, so porpoises and dolphins, have all been shown to have, have been affected by anthropogenic noise. And the one thing that is kind of a positive, I mean, the silver lining to the cloud of anthropogenic noise is though, 
even though we can see these really dramatic effects, it's got a real hope spot in it. And that's because sound you can remove from an environment. Things like oil spills, for example, that are very, very damaging to environments take a very long time to clear up. Things like climate change, um, plastic pollution, all of those things that are also massive problems that we're dealing with right now take huge amounts of effort to remove. But, but sound is there or it's not. You know, it's, it's, it's much easier to remove. It doesn't stay in the environment after you've taken the source away. So there are many ways in which we can really be making a big difference to the health of our oceans and to give a lot of animals um, a better chance at surviving in oceans that are also under threat from many other, um, from many other causes um, by doing something about anthropogenic noise. The major things that, I mean, we look at as a research group, but also have shown to have a big impact are mostly things such as construction. Um, so things like pile driving, which is when they get these massive kind of metal rods and basically pound them into the ground in order to build many things in the ocean. Um, most kind of piers, big docking areas, any kind of oil rig, for example, offshore um, energy, all of that is built using pile driving and it's very, very high energy. Things like um, resource extraction, so mining underwater, um, which obviously is, is in some areas very, very prolific, that introduces a huge amount of noise. At coastlines, we also have a big impact of, of boats um, and major shipping terminals as well. Shipping lanes that cross the global ocean are having hundreds of boats, thousands of boats moving across them daily. Uh, they're very loud, they're very slow, and they are operating in areas that otherwise are reasonably quiet. I mean, the Central Pacific, for example, doesn't have a lot of anything else in it, but they have constant ship traffic. Um, and one really interesting um, study that had a look at ship noise across the global oceans used the COVID-19 pandemic as almost like a natural experiment. And that's been something that's been really interesting to look at because you can't stop global shipping. It's very hard to, you know, as a scientist to come in and say, Hi, I'd like to stop a billion dollar industry for the day just so I can do a little experiment. But COVID-19 actually did that for, for us for many months. Um, and so a lot of people have been using that as like a natural removal experiment to see how that has impacted behavior and also how it's impacted movement. And in a lot of places they have seen that animals have returned to shipping lanes um, and made use of habitat that they otherwise were avoiding. And it wasn't clear before now that that was necessarily a result of noise. And obviously there are things that go alongside the noise as well as the physical presence, you know, the the chemicals and the ballast water and things that might also be having an impact on the on the life around there. But noise is likely a big source of, of the pollution there. And it's clearly removing it is having a positive impact. So understanding underwater sound um, has, has a lot of benefits um, because it does have a positive a positive ending. It's something that we can actually practically do something about. And that's that's a really exciting part of studying uh, an otherwise negative part of um, underwater or marine biology. And I understand there's a recreational component as well. So are we hearing, are you near the ocean right now? <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm are actually- Are hearing anthropogenic noise? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is, I'm, where I'm sat right now is actually a really good example. In classic bioacoustician fashion, I've managed to find the noisiest place in the world to, to try and sit and talk to you. Um, but it's actually it's a really driving good driving the point across. You're really making <laughs> your point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it's um, a really good example of, of multiple things. So firstly, yeah, there's, there's a lot of anthropogenic noise in my background right now. It's very unavoidable. I'm sat at a coastline. I'm actually sat right at a marina that's, that's full of boats right now. And um, 
seeing these go out every day is, is a major part of the reason I'm here um, and doing research in this area. But also, interestingly, one of the major parts of my research or soundscape research, which is some of the stuff we've been doing here, is using the sound of an environment to just understand it a bit more. And you don't think about it that much, but once you start to, it's very hard to lose it. And that's that the sound of an environment also says so much about where someone is or where an animal is or what a habitat is like than you necessarily need any other any other one of your senses for. So I might not, you, if, if I didn't have a camera on, if you couldn't see me, you know, you clearly, well, hopefully can't smell me um, or do any other, have any other interaction with me other than what you're hearing right now. You might be able to hear that there are boats not that far away. You might hear that banging that I just heard of, um, you know, a forklift truck with a boat on it moving across um, to try and put something in the water. And if you put all these pieces together, just from what you're hearing, you could get an idea of where I am. You probably think, oh, she's probably by the coastline. She might just be, you know, near some boats. She's probably in, you know, quite a built-up area if there's um, cars or trucks driving nearby. If you heard the music from from the bar just across the road, you might think that I'm in maybe a touristy area. You know, you could make a big under, you could get quite a lot of an understanding of where I am and the habitat I'm in. You'd know I was outside, for example, um, just from the sounds that you're hearing. And a lot of the work that we do underwater in soundscaping is actually quite similar to that. So you can understand the health of an environment based on the sound that it produces. And obviously you can understand a lot about the environment um, characteristics that you couldn't otherwise, that you might not otherwise measure. So a very soft habitat, very sandy, um, soft coral habitat, sound gets absorbed very quickly in that. So it sounds different to us. A very hard bottom, rocky area is going to have sound bouncing around and that will sound different when we record it. Um, similarly, and maybe more importantly to what we're talking about now, is if there's a lot of biology in an area, if there's a lot of fish, if a habitat is healthy and we know that there's a lot of animals there, we'll hear them. And so just by putting a microphone down and leaving it for a few days, we can really understand the biology of an area. We can understand the geography of an area. We can know what the weather might be like on the surface. We could know if there's transient animals coming through. We'd hear things like dolphins. We'd also even be able to get a good idea of the species composition. And to a degree, we'd be able to look at things like the abundance of different animals or the relative abundance of different animals in the environment. So sound is also a really important or very useful tool, actually, for biodiversity monitoring or habitat health monitoring that's very non-invasive. So there's another way that you can use sound that isn't just as you know an acoustic tool, but actually is, is a, is a non-invasive um, tool for, for those kind of indicators. And historically, that's been done by quite a lot of, you know, human presence in the ocean itself. I mean, a lot of the work we do involves taking boats out <laughs> and um, swimming around. So instead of doing a lot of transects all the time, you know, physically putting yourself in a boat out in the environment, we can actually go out once, put down a microphone. And some of the technologies now mean that we can leave these microphones for sometimes weeks at a time um, and go back, pick it up once and actually understand a lot about the environments we're working in. So that's actually an awesome segue because the next question I was going to ask you about is um, the actual methods behind your project. You know, we've been talking a lot about sound and its impacts. Um, so how are you actually studying sound? Yeah, absolutely. So we do sound, well, the, the way that we're approaching this project or when we, when we first started thinking about sharks in their environments, the biggest issue we had was that we really don't know a lot about how sharks are using sound in their ecology. And when we contextualize our research, we really need to well, what we wanted to do was to have kind of an applied component to that. So the most important thing we wanted to do was to first 
know the soundscape. So we have been working um, in collaboration with the um, University of Miami, Rosentia School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences, especially with Dr. Catherine McDonald at the Field School. And what we've been doing is producing a soundscape of the entire Biscayne Bay. Um, and if you know Miami, or if, if anyone who's listening has ever been there, you'll know that, I mean, to be honest, even if you haven't been here, I imagine that your idea of Miami is, is quite close to what it's like. It's very heavily built up. The coastlines are incredibly busy and full of people and the waterways are used very, very heavily. So there is a lot of boat traffic here, but I've really been inspired by how much biodiversity there is as well. And we often talk about, you know, conservation and protecting wild places. And that is really important to do. But I'd also argue that there are places, urban environments where biodiversity is also thriving and finding ways that we can also understand how they're doing that and continue to protect them in those areas is just as important. And so that was kind of something that we used when we started designing this project. So the first thing we do is we just go out and we, we have these little, um, they're called audio moths, but they, they record underwater sound. They're kind of like underwater microphones. You actually get a very similar microphone in something like a GoPro. So they're, they're very basic and they're really easy to apply. So it's a great type of science. Um, with a number of these, we can go and put them down. We put them underwater. We leave them for about six weeks and then we pull them up and we have a look at what we've got. And this gives us a really good understanding of how the sound changes, um, you know, day and night, but also over time across six weeks. And what we do with that data is we then filter the frequencies. So we have a look at just the hearing ranges that we think sharks are using and seeing what they might actually be picking up on. So at the moment, we're, we're kind of in the stage of, of understanding how this is working. So we haven't completely finished this analysis yet, um, but it's been really interesting to hear the kind of things that you do pick up because you can't always be there. And a lot of field work is limited by day and night, but sound isn't. So listening to the differences between day and night, um, which fish are there, which fish might be prey items for sharks. So what are there fish there that are calling in the hearing ranges of sharks? Are these things that might become prey for sharks? Might they be using that as a signal? Um, that's something that we're going to ask, hopefully with some of these playbacks. Um, but also just having a listen to, to the kind of anthropogenic noises that are present. Are they in the hearing ranges of sharks and are they there at all? And at the moment, we're able to answer both of those questions with what seems like, yes, we hear many, many boats, which is quite likely, but we also hear things such as fireworks. So fireworks are actually very, very loud um, and they transmit very well through the water. Um, even things like people having parties on beaches, um, you'd be so surprised at the number of recordings I've listened back to. And, you know, you can almost recognize the Jennifer Lopez lyric. It's really, really <laughs> very clearly um, transmitting down to these kind of shallow water nurseries. The second stage of this, and, and after, after having a good understanding of what sounds are in a shark's environment, the next stage really is to know, okay, it's there and they could technically hear it, but do they care? Um, and that's maybe the more important question. So what we're doing now, and I'm, I'm currently doing this work, so I don't have many answers for you, but I, I hope to get them to you um, at some point in the future, is how are they responding to things like boat noise in their habitat? What kind of noises that are in their are in their hearing ranges are having an effect on them? Do do we see behavioural differences, or do they simply not care because they've been you know swimming in Miami for so many years that potentially they've just become completely desensitised? So that's what we're working on now, um, and our methods, yeah, primarily using underwater microphones, hydrophones, um, and at the moment we're using some brubs and behavioural video analysis um, in order to look at to look at the responses to sound. Awesome. And BRUB stands for? Beta remote, remote Underwater Videos. 
Awesome. Underwater video systems. Sorry, I've become complacent in my in my acronym using. No, that's okay. I'm trying to cover all the bases just in case. <laughs> um, so, what what species are you looking at primarily, or do you have a one singular focus species, or is it a handful? Mm-hmm. So, where we're working now, we're really interested in juvenile sharks. So, there's also often um, kind of shifts in how an animal's sensory system works as they grow. Because obviously the senses that are important to an animal that's in a coastal nursery might be different to that animal once it leaves its coastal nursery and starts swimming in the open ocean. Um, So there's a distinction there. So juveniles are what we're interested in. Um, And juveniles that have nurseries around Miami. Um, We're using these as model systems, but obviously we hope that we can then use this to apply to more animals or more species of shark um, after our fieldwork is complete. Um, at the moment, the the kind of species we get a lot of in Miami are things like juvenile lemon sharks. Um, we also get a lot of juvenile nurse sharks. There is a great hammerhead nursery um, that exists within the Biscayne Bay. Uh, there are also a lot of stingrays um, and juvenile stingrays as well. Um, stingrays are a slightly different question. Um, we're not directly looking at them, um, but they're very closely related to sharks. Um, so it is of it is of interest to us. Um, so we have some juvenile eagle rays as well. Um, some of our Brov's work is quite likely to bring in larger and more adult animals too, um, because they do frequent the bay. So things like bull sharks, um, we do get sometimes sawfish. If we get a sawfish, we'll be very lucky, but they do frequent the area. Sandbar sharks, black nose sharks, um, all sorts really, but mostly, yeah, subtropical. So you mentioned that you're working with the field school. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about your work with the field school? in Miami and how you got involved with their work um, as someone who is pursuing a PhD at the university in the UK. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, one of the most interesting or exciting things I think about doing a PhD or being involved in research is that ability to to form collaborations and connections with, with multiple groups. So we've had these questions that have been really you know, poignant to the PhD that we developed back at the university in the UK. At the beginning of my PhD, we knew that these are the questions we wanted to go for. And then obviously, once you have a good scientific understanding of what you want to study, you have to find a system to work in. Miami is just the perfect place to work um, because it's just so incredibly developed. But like I said, it has that biodiversity at the same time. And I was lucky enough to be in contact with Dr. Catherine McDonald, who was based at the field school um, prior to wanting to, to do this work. So for me, it worked very logically. Um, but being in a position where you have a good question, where you have a strong question, it makes your horizons very, very wide. It's, it's nice to be able to go out there and think, OK, I know that this is interesting. Where can I apply it? And sometimes that's an easier thing to do than to try and have a system in place and then manipulate it to the kind of questions you want to ask. But like I said, I mean, being part of a university, even in the UK, we have a lot of international connections. Um, and I think really utilizing the connections of the people you know, utilizing connections of people you work with. Um, one, The best thing about science is collaboration. So um, I've never really been too afraid to to reach out and just talk to people about science and, and see if we have a common interest. And, and that's really helped me, I think, in, in getting to work out here. And I'd encourage anyone who, who works in science to be very open with their, their ideas and their plans and, and share that with other people in order to get the most out of what they do. That's so cool. I, I feel like um, with science, there's a lot of rules, but there's mm-hmm. also no rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely that. 
And um, I mean, the thing that it is sometimes quite daunting, I think, when you're when you're young or when you're first getting started to, to know where those connections are or where those opportunities are. And you often sometimes think, you know, I'm, I'm too young and junior to be like asking people these questions or to be, you know, cold emailing people. But ultimately, you know, the, the love for what you do does tend to bridge those gaps. And um, if you find a group that, that works well for you, you'll, you'll, you'll know that and it, it makes it a lot easier. Um, I should mention while we're talking about the field school, I guess that they are also just a great group of people to work with. And that's something that we sometimes don't talk enough in science about when we're just talking about what we do is that great people and great organizations also really facilitate great science. Um, and so I also you know, really advocate for, for working in environments that are happy and healthy and, and supportive. And so working with the field school has been a really, joy, a really big joy in, in that respect. That's awesome to hear that you're feeling supported and loved in your workplace. That's so important. Um, so what most excites you about your current research? And are there any components that you really enjoy more than the others? Um, I mean, honestly, everything. I feel like we have a, we have a, in my, in my university group back in, in, well, I'm working in an office in Bristol at the moment, but, but yeah, back at my home university, we've been talking a lot recently about how it's so hard to, to just focus on your PhD a lot of the time because every time you answer a question, every time you go further into field work, it mostly just gives you five more projects you want to do. And um, I actually keep a little kind of desk pad next to my computer where every time I have an idea for something else I want to do or something I want to add on, I just have to write it down and forget about it because otherwise I end up having a 12 chapter PhD by the end of you know a single workday. Um, but really the most exciting thing I think at the moment is that I think it is, I mean, the, the playback stuff has been something I've wanted to do for a long time. I think that having having being able to contribute to a question or an understanding that we haven't had um, that doesn't exist and, and knowing that what you're doing is is very novel is really exciting and I do think that we're seeing um, a kind of resurgence in acoustic research within sharks there are some really fantastic people such as Dr. Lucille Chapuy, um, Dr. Kari Opak who have been doing some work in this that is really starting to open it back up again um, and I'm in, really excited to be able to hopefully contribute to part of that and to to watch the field grow a little bit further. I'm really interested to to have a look at the impacts of boat noise and also hopefully to use that to work with some stakeholders to see if we can, you know, mitigate it. Um, I think that will be a really exciting next step and something that really motivates me to continue doing this research is that hopefully at the end it has a practical application when it comes to legislation, um, even when it comes to, you know, tourism operators in areas like Miami, um, having an understanding of how they can help and What's exciting is also that, you know, a lot of people at the moment seem to be really driven by conservation. Um, it's very easy, and, and I get it a lot, to have that kind of eco-anxiety, that, that real struggle to, to keep working in a field where sometimes it feels like the whole world is ending and there's never going to be a solution to a lot of these problems. But I think increasingly we see that people want to be engaged in conservation, and it's very accessible now. And I think that as scientists, it is our responsibility to make that accessible um, to people. And I think that sound is one of those things that people relate to. Everyone has a very personal connection with sound. And I think that if we're able to work with tourism operators, if we're able to work with hotels and marinas and, and tell them about the impacts that sound can have and show people the ways in which sound is, is having an impact on marine life. And just by driving your boat a bit slower when you leave the marina the next day, or by maybe going a little bit slower when you're passing over coral reefs, or maybe considering using electric engines, 
those are the kind of things that we can start to engage people in and hopefully use to take our science in, in a really practical way. I feel like it is really hard, you know, when you're studying a really specific thing about the natural world to kind of get really lost in that and start thinking like, why does this even matter? <laughs> so yeah. it's really cool that, you know, clearly you're, you're thinking very deeply about expanding and what, what does it mean when we find the answers to our questions, you know, then what? Um, yeah, definitely. And um, that's really important. I think, I think, you know, it's, it's hard because I think everyone's driven by just a fascination. You know, most people, are, at least, you know, a lot of people I, I, I think most scientists, I'd say, are driven really by just the love of not knowing something. You know, it's that incessant need to be like, I don't know what the answer is, so I want to find out. Um, but also it's very, it makes it very easy to want to drop it once you've found out. So it's, it's, it's important, I think, very important to, to from the get-go, try and build that into to the science and, and try and take it the whole way or at least make it accessible for policymakers or um, to make that knowledge easily used and digested by, by an end user or someone who can make that then practically make a difference. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a ton about your work, but what do you like to do when you're not doing research? <laughs> um, think about the other research I'd like to do. <laughs> no, um, I think, I mean, I have, I have a few hobbies. I, I love, I like running and running has actually been something that I think has really made a big big positive difference on on my science i used to mostly use it just as a way to to not be you know practically at my desk when you're when you're running you have to be somewhere else you can't do anything you have to just do nothing but run and the first few times you do that you're like why am i putting myself through this hell um when i could just be sitting at my desk doing something else or watching tv or um switching off in another way but I really found that having that as a thinking space and spending time just outdoors experiencing the natural world actually also brings me a lot of inspiration. Um, I get a lot of thoughts on, on you know, how you perceive the world and, and other things that might be interesting to me when I'm out there running. And um, yeah, I think that that's probably the thing I use the most to, to switch off um, and just really enjoy. I aspire to be <laughs> that dedicated to running. <laughs> I would say that I don't think anyone who <laughs> I don't know. I don't think anyone who enjoys running ever loved it the first time they tried. So it's pers- partly perseverance, but um, yeah, it's nice just. To, I mean, any way that you can is is really important. Not to get too attached to your work sometimes, um, because it can be really, really you know difficult to deal with when you're studying something that is sometimes a negative influence or sometimes it's frustrating. You know, I've I spend hours of my life trying to make five lines of code run and um it's not healthy to spend another five hours doing that just just to get it done but actually taking some time completely away from it and yeah running is a great way to physically not be able to do anything but run so that space is is important and usually you find you come back to your computer and you've got a completely different mindset so it's helpful that's true maybe next time i'm struggling with rl yeah give it a a jogger on the block (laughs) You really, you know, it can only at least you'll at least you'll get some space for life from, from your computer if you hate it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so this is our kind of final question before we get to our main five questions that we ask everybody. Uh huh. Um, so, what advice would you give to other young women who are looking to enter the field of shark research or fishery science? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a good question because um, it is a difficult field to, to work in sometimes. And I know that it, it doesn't always 
have a great reputation. Um, so I always want to encourage people to get involved. I think that there are many different ways that you can do that in, in a productive way. Um, but I definitely think that the major piece of advice I have is that you are so valuable as a person and the skills that you bring to a place that you should be making sure that the people you work with value you as just as much as you value them. Um, and feeling valued in, in the place that you work shouldn't be negotiable just because there's a really exciting opportunity. So be really careful just to make sure that you're choosing opportunities that work for you and not just jumping at everything. I think one thing that that is stuck with me through through my work is that I I took one class at undergraduate in, in sensory biology and I thought I was going to fail it. It was it was difficult. <laughs> and I really loved the subject and I, I long thought, you know, I wonder if there's a way I can put these two things together. My love for sharks, my, my interest in sensory biology, I don't think I'm good at this in maybe either way. And I, I pursued it because I loved it and, and it ended up turning into something that I think is really exciting and interesting. And I think that if you have that love and you have that real interest in a subject, don't, you know, let that go, you know, let that, let that really motivate you to forge your own path and make sure that you're able to bring a bit of you and a bit of your, you know, personality and the things that you really love to your work. It may take you in different directions. There's no one clear path. It's never easy. And for every person who you think is successful, I can promise you they've dealt with more rejection um, than the success you see. And not being hard on yourself in those moments and, and, you know, learning to talk about that is also really important with other people will help get you through. So, yeah, surround yourself with good people and follow your passion. Um, don't be scared to email people who interest you. Um, I'm sure that there is no scientist in the world who receives an email from someone hearing about how much they love their work who is ever upset by that. Um, everyone has been, or most people I've reached out to in that capacity have been nothing but um, really lovely and, and helpful in in reaching back out. So, um, yeah, don't be scared to, to talk to people. Yeah, now that I think about it, I'm definitely in the camp of, like, should I email them? Mm. But then when I think about it, like, anytime anybody has ever asked me about stingrays, I'm like, yeah. yes, exactly. <laughs> let me tell yeah. them all about them. <laughs> funny because I don't think, I mean, you know, I, I get that. I don't want to, I don't like emailing. I feel I can spend, you know, half a day sometimes crafting an email to someone if it's someone who I consider, you know, someone who studies something that I'm, you know, my scientific heroes, it takes me a long time to reach out to in the first place. But you never, ever think about it the other way around. As soon as someone asks you a question about what you do, I'll, I'll talk your head off for a couple of hours, no problem. So, um, yeah, it's it's worth putting yourself in, in, in those shoes and um, knowing that any scientist loves to talk about what they do. So, so don't be scared. Right, I feel like I'm constantly just holding it in. <laughs> it's difficult. Don't bring it up it's right hard. Now. <laughs> Yeah, I think the more like, I don't know, the more you can also like just have conversations with people like people, um, you know, talk about the things that you love the way you would anyone, you know, a family member, someone you meet anywhere else. Um, it, it makes those conversations a bit easier. I'm not a very good conversationist. You know, I've always struggled in in making conversation in social situations. And um, sometimes actually talking about things you love is a bit of a, a lubricant to that. You know, it makes you talk a lot easier when you and you're actually talking about something you're passionate about. So just starting that conversation usually, you know, allows that to continue. So so just make the take the first step and the rest will the rest will usually flow. That's awesome advice. Thank you. Okay. Well, now the tough part of the interview is over and we're down <laughs> to those final five questions that we talked about. We ask these questions to 
each one of the guests that comes on the show. Okay. So we're going to start with the easiest one or the hardest one, in my opinion, which is what is your favorite fish? Oh, that is very hard. I think that you do have an, uh, okay, you can't let, you just can't let me talk for too long on this because I'll change my mind. But exactly. off the top of my head, I will always say the mega mouth shark. The mega mouth mm. shark is incredibly underrated. Um, they're one of the biggest species of sharks, but they're also one of the filter feeding species of shark. Um, they have these amazing, cute little downturn mouths, and they're absolutely huge, and they're really, really rare, so we don't see them very often. We know very little about them, um, but they're just absolutely fascinating. Um, and I, I've always, it's a dream of mine to one day either see one or, or just study one for a little bit to see what they're actually doing in the depths of the ocean. Is that the one that has bioluminescence inside its mouth? Yes, it does, but they don't, they haven't, they still don't know what it's for. So it's, it's quite interesting. It doesn't seem to, at the moment, serve a purpose. So we'll see what it's actually for in the future, perhaps. Maybe that'll be my, my short term study. We'll see. <laughs> the next question is What is your favorite memory from your career so far? Oh, that's a very hard question. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, definitely the most memorable. One of the things that I think about constantly is there was one day in the field where I was when I witnessed a shark give birth and that was obviously something that's very very difficult to see um it doesn't happen very often and it was just it really I learned so much that day by physically being there and I think that field work is always inspiring and that you don't know what's going to happen and you're constantly on your toes but you learn so much more from being in a field system than you ever can by reading about it 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 is incredible the amount of knowledge that you'll just soak up and we were out and it was it was a large lemon shark that had given birth and we were able to to catch some of her pups to tag them so we wanted to put tags out so that we were immediately able to identify where their um, maternal dna came from um, but also then to follow them as they grew later in life and the things that really struck me firstly were that they're born with i mean sharks are either born with no teeth or they're born with teeth that haven't calcified yet so a lot of shark structures are soft when they're born. And once they've been exposed to the water for a while, then they'll harden. But a baby shark is so soft. I didn't, I didn't think about this, but its mouth was almost like gummy. Um, they were super slippery, almost like if you're picking up any other type of fish. Um, and even their fins, they just kind of would bend in the wind. You know, if they had a stream of water come over them, they would just bend. And I, I don't know, it's just something I'd never thought about before, you know, that obviously these sharks have to be very soft and their fins all curved around in order for birth to be easy for the mother. Um, but seeing these, these baby sharks firsthand was just fascinating and definitely something that, that I'll never forget. How big were the baby lemons? They were around 45 to 55. So pretty small. Most of them are, most of the kind of juveniles you'll catch will be between kind of 55 and 65. But these ones, obviously, because we caught them at birth, were smaller than most of them we caught. So... Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think somewhere around 50 is probably more more likely. Adorable. <laughs> um, so what is your dream job or location? Mm-hmm. I think about this a lot. I don't think I have one. I am so drawn by interesting questions that I think wherever they took me, I would go. My dream job, I mean, if it existed, would be purely just to you know, have infinite money to, to study shark sensory systems. Um, I'm really interested in knowing more about how they interact with other species sensory systems. I think truly that I am so interested by so many different things that if there was a good question, I would follow it to most places. Um, I am a big advocate for shark biology in the UK. I think that 
the UK is often sold short on its marine biology. Studying there is obviously maybe not as glamorous or, or easy as somewhere like Miami, but there are so many species of sharks in, in British waters. There are blue sharks. We have big basking sharks, um, multiple types of dogfish, um, angel, angel, angel sharks. Um, and there are many projects that are starting to uncover more about their location, their post-release mortality, um, their geography. But we still don't know a lot about their behavior. There's still not a lot of work that's done um, with some of the um, less resident species as well. And I think that as the climate changes and these populations also start to move, it'll be interesting to see how that affects fisheries. Um, so some of that stuff I'd be really interested in looking into. I'm also really interested in early development. So I'd also love to, to take a job later, maybe doing some stuff with, with egg cases and, and pre-baby babies. Mm, even cuter. <laughs> yeah, um, so I guess you that. kind of... You kind of answered this, but I'll ask it more explicitly. If money was not an issue, what's one project you would like to work on? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, <laughs> let me think. I mean, obviously, the if if it if it existed, if we were able to, you know, soundscape the global ocean. I mean, having a way to constantly monitor, you know, the sounds that were available would be amazing. Um, one of the things I've always wanted to do is really just do that alongside a lot of you know, satellite tagging. If we could see where animals were moving and exactly the sounds that were happening real time, um, that's something that would really open up a lot of our understanding of, you know, bioacoustics um, and how it relates to animal movement. So that's something I've always been interested in finding out a way to do. And I think the technology is probably, maybe not globally available, we probably wouldn't be able to do it on a global scale, but locally, I think that the technology would be there to do something like that. Um, so that would probably be a study I would, I would look into if I had a, a, lot, of, a lot of money. Yeah, maybe a little microphone on a pop-off tag. <laughs> yeah. That'd be cool. <laughs> um, and then the last question is, if there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? <laughs> That's a very hard one. Um, hmm. Actually, probably, I think it's quite an easy one. I would just say, don't touch wildlife. You'd be surprised at how much that doesn't happen. <laughs> and um, I think it's something that is a really easy way to respect the world around you. And it's easy to think, I think, that maybe just you as an individual doing one thing is maybe not that problematic. Um, but, you know, cumulatively, we see a lot of destruction happening, um, especially, you know, just standing on corals and things like that gives me the, the heebie-jeebies. And um, I wish people would do it less. So probably that. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that makes me think of that meme where it's like when you kick something with your fin and you think it was a coral reef, but it turns out it was just your buddy's face. <laughs> it's like somebody who's relieved. Like, <laughs> yes, well, it's better. It's probably better for the environment to kick your buddy's face than to kick a coral. So I'll allow it. Exactly, and I think my buddy, if they're really my buddy, they'll agree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, well, Clemency, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. No, thank you for having me. It was so awesome to hear more about your project and catch up a little bit on the work that you're doing. Yes, thank you. Um, if people want to find more information or get a hold of you, how would they do that? Yes, um, I am on Twitter um, at Clemency E. White. That's probably the best way. But okay. I also, if you if you Google Clemency White University of Exeter, you can probably find um, my university profile and, and email me there if you had any specific questions as well. And if you would like to get a hold of me, you can find this podcast on twitter facebook or instagram at fisheries pod or old-fashioned email uh, feedback at the fisheries podcast.com 
And I hope you all enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Elise. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, don't touch wildlife. Wildlife.